going to start a series on contending for faith, contending for faith. And we're going to look at Jude, we're going to go through the entire book over the next few weeks. We're going to start at verse 1, it says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Christ Jesus. Lord, help us as we study. There are three things <clears throat> we want to talk about here. What it means to be called, what it means to be cherished, and what it means to be conserved or saved. The book of Jude is um, one of the shorter books in the Bible. It's only one chapter. And we think it was written somewhere in the neighborhood of the late 60s A.D. Because much of the same language that is used in the book of Second Peter is used in the book of Jude. And remember, there weren't thousands of churches around. There were possibly a couple hundred during this time. And they were having inroads into communities that were unreached, but there weren't a whole lot. And so whatever letter was written to one community would often get passed off to the next so that everybody could understand best practices and best theology. And <clears throat> common themes would, would emerge in certain time periods. Now the beauty of the New Testament is that we've got a very limited time to see how the church grows. Very limited. About from the time that Jesus rose from the dead till we get to the letter of uh, John in, in book of, which is called the book of Revelation. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 to 40 years. And what we see is through that process how the church grows. So the one church that you can see most often mentioned and watch their progress is the church at Ephesus, which is mentioned in Acts chapter 19 when it's birthed. Then we have a letter uh, to the church at Ephesus from Paul. We also see Paul giving his farewell to the elders at the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. And then we see uh, the church at Ephesus being encouraged through First and Second Timothy, where Paul has placed Timothy as the pastor at the church at Ephesus. And so all the problems that he's dealing with here about those Ephesians. And then we see the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation, where they have grown and then begun to decline in that they have left their first love. So we see a progression of an entire people in the New Testament. Here we see some interesting telltale signs about how the the, the church to which Jude is writing is growing and that this particular greeting is very short and to the point. Most of the time you'll see greetings from apostolic men be, be not only those which are a little extended but explanatory. So when they say called, they will say how they are called or by whom they are called. But you don't see that here. When they say, beloved of God, they will say, why? But you don't see that here. When they, they talk about being kept, they will say, how? But you don't see that here. And it's not because Jude is neglecting those things. It's probably because the church already knows all those things. And that letters have already been circulated, and they have been passionate 
about trying to do the right thing. And Jude has other points to make in his letter. And thus he is just introducing these ideas to contextualize all he's saying without explanation because they already get it. But we who don't read our Bibles very much, we need a lot of explanation as to what does that mean? When he says called, what does that mean? By whom and how? When he says beloved, why are we beloved? And when he says kept, how are we kept? And for how long? These are things that need explanation to us because we weren't steeped in the apostolic concentration that was in the first church. We just didn't have it. And so it's important for us to understand what he's saying in the beginning so we can get more of what he says in the end. He says we are called of God. Now, calling is that which usually is relegated to somebody's specific emphasis to be what they need to be for the world in their generation. So called to be a missionary or called to be a pastor or called to, to some kind of unusual missions work, orphan work. But um, I don't want to talk about the individual callings that you might have that make you particularly unique on the planet. I want to leave it on the on the realm, in the realm of the general, so we all can benefit from it. And there are two areas about which I want to concentrate. One is what it means to be called to holiness, and two, what it means to be called to one another. These are two things we can't get away from. And, and Peter says this in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. You all, as, as, as called out beloved children, do not... Go back. As obedient kids now, don't go back and be enslaved to the former lusts that, that were used to conform you to its image. But like the Holy One who has called you, be holy also in your behavior. Why? Because He is holy. We need to be holy. There's a lot in there. But what He's trying to communicate is a sense of calling because He called us to be like Him. That's what he created us to be like him. But we marred that image, and then we marred our function. So when you mar the image, it's hard to, to, to act like what you should be like because you aren't what you should be, therefore you can't act it. And everything about Christianity is making sure that we are acting, we are living out what we have become. It's not an act. It's not putting on a mask. It's not just developing a better idea in our brain. It's actually becoming something different. And out of the image that is being recreated in us, Paul calls us new creations in Christ, out of that image, we do differently. We speak differently. We think differently. We act differently. And people then, because we act so differently, describe us as being holy. Now, holiness might be reflected in many ways, but you really can't tell how holy somebody is by how they, how they dress. Yeah. You can't tell how holy somebody is by what they don't drink. You can't tell how holy somebody is by what movies they don't see or music they don't listen to. Holiness is here. It's godliness. It's being like him on the inside. Now, although you can't tell whether somebody is holy on the outside by what they don't do or how they appear, 
you can tell that somebody is unholy by what they do or how they appear. You can tell that. You can tell the way somebody is dressed if it's a little unholy. I think, I think you, you women, when you see somebody who is a female dressed in a way that might be unholy, I think what you say is this. Mm. <laughs> something to that. Some, something like that. You can tell unholiness, but you can't necessarily tell holiness. Holiness comes from here. Now, when you are more like God on the inside, you think like him, you're motivated like him, then all of a sudden your actions are going to be more reflective of him. And so you may be able to say, that looks more like God than I've seen in most. That's amazing right there. That's really good. You're showing me what I've never seen before. And so we ought to be able to reflect something of who he is. But it starts on the inside. It is not just the reformation of, of action. It is the transformation of soul. We are called to be holy. Why? Because he is, and we are made in his image. And if any one of us begins to dip below that bar, we are not living at the level at which we should. We are settling for mediocrity, and we ought to hate it. We ought to consider it an enemy, anything... <coughs> excuse me, anything that is trying to rob us of our holiness and our privilege of being like God is, is, is tempting us to live beneath the purpose for which we have been created. Not only are we called to be holy, but we're called to be with one another. And there are many things to, to, to which we're called, but these two things are probably right there at the top of responsibility as, as believers because we all have the same responsibility in these two areas. Paul said it like this in Ephesians chapter 4. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And then he says the next part, with all gentleness, forbearance, patience, loving and serving one another. So when he talks about walking in a manner that is worthy of your calling, he relates calling to how we treat each other. And that's how we prove we are walking in a manner worthy. You are not called to live in a silo. You're not called to live in solitaire. You're called to live with people. I'm sorry, but you've got to walk with me. You want to be in this church. There are other people you may not like that you have to walk with. And the reason Paul has to encourage people to walk in a manner worthy of their calling is because the people with whom they have to walk that he is trying to encourage generally don't want to walk with those people. They, don't, they aren't interested in trying to get involved with folks that they don't like. Why do you need patience with somebody you agree with all the time? Why do you need forbearance? Why do you need tolerance with somebody that you click with all the time? Everybody's fine with that. The reason you need those things is because you don't like them and they don't like you. Now hear me. There is coming a time in our society where the church is not going to be valued in any way. In fact, looked at as an enemy. I'm not prophesying. I'm just looking at the trends and understanding throughout church history, this is the pattern. What we have lived in in terms of America for the last 200 50 years or so is a bubble of grace compared to all of church history with respect to how, how the world has treated the church. 
Rome thought it was a good idea to, to make Christians lunch for lions. The world, in fact, today is the, the uh, Sunday for the persecuted church, where the church is supposed to, all around the world, make known what is going on with the Christians. There are people right now being martyred for the faith. In the Hindu world, in the Islamic world, Christians dying because they believe in Jesus. We live in this bubble. Now, from, from everything I can see in our society, and I'm grateful for the peace we have. I really am. I'm not trying to make it any other. But what I can see in our society is that things are growing to the, to the place where we are, we, are not, we are not only not favored, we're be, being less than tolerated. And some pastors are beginning to, to start a movement that will make sure that we get to keep the privileges of our 501c3 status and not for profit so people continue to give. I'm all for that. I want you to get your tax break. But that's the least of my concerns. They're coming for me. They're coming for you. At some point, we keep going like this, and the church does not have the impact that it should on our society, and we don't see an awakening out there. We don't see a revival in the church and an awakening in the community. This church is going to be, talking about the church in America, is going to be categorized and, and chronicled in the same way as church has been throughout history because that's what, that's what the world does. And I, I say this, and it's a long way around to the front door. But listen, you're going to have to love your enemy out there. You're going to have to relationally care for the person out there who doesn't care for you at all. So if you don't do it well here, this is practice, y'all. It's practice. If you don't do it well here with people who are trying to do right, you don't do it well. How in the world are you going to do it out there? Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what is that to you? Everybody does that. But I say love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Relationally, we are called to love one another in here so well that the world recognizes that we are his disciples. Now, if you love somebody who loves you, then how does the world say, wow? How would they say, oh, my goodness, that, that can only be done by Jesus? No, I do that every day. So what is it that makes the world say, wow? When we love the different, when we love the other, when we love the person who doesn't love us, then the world says, oh, my goodness, that's not human. That's not man. God's in the middle of that right there. This is why Paul says we are to walk with one another. We are called to do this. And if you do not have relationships with people that challenge you, I'm not talking about they're in your face. I'm talking about just you don't get along. People that are difficult to get along with, then you aren't. You aren't tapping the same kind of stuff that made God love you. Please understand, he didn't come and get you because you were good company. He came to get you because you were in need. And he pursued you, 
did not give up pursuing you, kept following you, kept loving you, kept reaching out when you were going the wrong way, when I was going the wrong way, not trying to be a part of what he was doing, and he kept pursuing until he got me. He loved me when I did not love him. I did not care about him. He loved me like that and pulled me in. That kind of love God is asking you to display just in reciprocation. If that's what got you in, then bring somebody else with it. Use that to bring somebody else with it. We are called to be together, which is a great segue to the next point, cherished. We are beloved. God loved me for, for what reason, I don't know. I don't know. In fact, I can boil it down to, to, to the fact that, that he loved me for no good reason at all. He just decided to. And un- unfortunately, in your own romantic mind about what love is, same for you. And it doesn't sound real sensational. He just loved you because he decided to. I mean, you weren't attractive to him. You, he, wasn't, he didn't find any great reason to be affectionate towards you. No, no. There's nothing about me that, that, that attracted God to me. There's nothing about me that inspired God to be affectionate toward me. He loved me for no good reason at all. He just decided to. And the reason I know that to be true is that if I can describe a good reason for which he loved me, then I, I probably will break it tomorrow. I'll probably violate it tomorrow. And if that is the reason for which he loved me, then he has good reason to stop. And I don't know many things that you believe might be good reasons for God to love you that you won't break. I don't know many. In fact, given the opportunity, you live long enough, you'll break every one of them. The beautiful thing is this. If he loves you for no good reason at all, then there's no reason he won't. Are you listening to me? It may not sound sensational and fantastic and and very amorous, but it's securing that I can't do anything to make him stop loving me. Wow. Wow. That's great because I can do some stuff. (laughs) I can do some stuff now. All of us can do some stuff. But he loves me in spite of what I do. And that kind of love, it says in 1 John, we should learn from. We love, John says, chapter 4, because he first loved us. We know how to love by looking at what he did for us. I beg you. Figure out how to love, not on the basis of of a Harlequin novel. Not on the basis of how you feel. Because I can make you feel some kind of way. Not on the basis of what somebody has done for you. Or the commitments that they have made. Or the loyalty they have pledged. Because at some point, they will violate every one of those things. We need to love in the same way that God loved us. How? For no good reason at all. 
We just decide to do it. Now, when it comes to the other, uh, other things that love describes in, in, at, at, in, in the New Testament, there are four words for love. There's agape, which is what I just described, unconditional love. There's eros. Now, you want to have good eros? You better do some stuff. Eros is that romantic love. No romance without doing some stuff, gentlemen. There is no romance, none, none, none. You better bring it with some flowers. You better bring some candy. You better bring some rings. You better bring some jewelry. You better be, bring some nice words. You want some arrows. <laughs> Phileo, friendship kind of love. Well, you're going to have to have some reciprocation if you really want to be friends, not just tolerate one another. And then there's storge, which is the familial love, the love that a father has for a son or daughter and back and forth. That kind of thing. All the, those are the four ways that the Greek describes the one word we have for love. But we only have, and we, we don't really know what love means because we only have one word for it and we use it to say, oh, I love my family so much. I also love ice cream. <laughs> Rocky Road, that's, oh, it just me. And we, we use the same word and we, we, we confuse it because we're not quite, we know what we mean, but we're not quite sure exactly the difference in terms of definition. And so it's important for us to know exactly what the Bible has to say. And it grounds all of the other three on the first one, agape, unconditional. And then lastly, we are kept. <laughs> Matthew Jesus says, my father is greater than all. And you all are in his hand. And he will not let you go. You are kept. I am privileged to know that when he saved me, he didn't have to resave me. He did it once and for all. And my salvation is secured. I can't do anything to improve upon it. And I can't do anything to have it rescinded. My salvation is secured. Now, I realize that many people say, well, wait, 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 wait. That first part I like. I can't do anything to improve upon it. That second part I'm not quite sure, Pastor, because that kind of gives license for people to do whatever they want since they know they're already in heaven and they can just live the way they desire. That's not right. You're right. That's not right. And anybody who has that tendency, if they begin to say, well, my, my place in glory is secured, therefore I can do what I want, I question whether you are really saved. Now, hear my words, hear my English well. I said, I question whether you are really saved. I didn't say whether you were. I said, I question. Reason being, anybody who thinks that way doesn't think right enough to be saved. You're not manifesting the kind of fruit in your mentality and in your theology that allows me to be con confirming as to your salvation experience. I'm not saying you're not. I just can't confirm it because everybody I know who's saved is trying to flee from sin, not looking for the opportunity to do sin. That's what saved people do. So the fact that you are looking at this as an opportunity to do more says a lot about what I can't find on the inside. 
The only way I can find what I need to find is if you confirm to me on a regular basis with fruit that you are actually right. And the fruit I'm looking at doesn't look like it should come from that kind of tree. A Christian free tree says, I want to do the will of God. A non-Christian tree says, I don't. And your lifestyle is saying, I don't. So I'm begging you, go back and check your foundation. Go back and check how you first believed. Because it has nothing to do with the relief of guilt. Simply because you did something on a given night and now you need to be released from the burden of feeling bad about it doesn't mean you got saved. Salvation is this. I quit. I can't live this way anymore. I surrender my life to you for the rest of my days, my God. I'm going to be your boy, your girl. You tell me what to do, I'll do it. You tell me where to go, I will go. That's salvation. It is not, Lord, I feel so bad, I'm sorry. Please forgive me for what I've done, amen. Sounds really theologically correct. It's just not complete. You can't have that. You can't have the kind of forgiveness you need without the repentance of saying, I quit doing that. This is why Peter said when the folks asked him at the very end of his message in Acts chapter 2, what can we do to be saved? He said, repent, which means to take a 180. If you're going that way, you choose to go that way. Repent, and then you get the forgiveness of sins. Salvation is that which allows us the privilege of knowing what, what, what it feels like to be kept. Now, there's nothing I can do to improve on his keeping. But I confirm the fact that I am his by the way I live. I'm kept for the rest of my days by his goodness and his grace, and it makes me secure. Now, two things that allow us to be kept, and I close. One, two things from which we are kept, and I close. One is we are kept from eternal damnation. That's a good thing. That's good. You, 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 you don't want to go to that spot. Romans chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, For if he died for us while we were yet sinners, how much more will he freely justify us through his blood and, and save us from the wrath that is to come? So there is wrath that is coming, and it's coming upon people who don't know him, but those who have been covered under his blood are saved from that wrath. And that wrath is horrible. It is the divine, perfect judgment of God upon all disobedience without any kind of measured mercy. No measured mercy. Every day when we think about being judged, if somebody gets judged in this world for what they do wrong, believe me, mercy is mixed in because they still breathe. God is stunning in his mercy. But when, it, when he chooses to, 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 to not apply it, Judgment is swift, and it's unrelenting. And before you begin to apply some kind of blame to him because you think, well, how could God do that? Wait, 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 wait. What have you done to deserve it? Remember, he's the one who gave his son to make sure you didn't have to be judged, and you chose not to accept it. He took all the wrath of God for you on the cross so that you didn't have to, and you chose to walk on by? Don't blame him. Do not blame him when he sends people to hell. Don't do it. Secondly, we get to be saved from this. This reality. 
The last part of what Peter said in Acts chapter 2. Repent. They asked, what can we do to be saved in Acts chapter 2, verse 38 through 40? Repent. Let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words he warned them, saying, be saved from this wicked and corrupt generation. So salvation, as far as Peter and the disciples were, were concerned, was, was, yes, okay, we get eternal salvation and then we get to go to heaven. But he was concerned about saving people from this. You need to be saved from this reality. You need to be slave, saved from, from immorality. From, from I'm, trying, I'm trying to keep it G. You need to be saved from all the stuff that people intentionally do wrong because their heart is wayward and it takes them in the wrong direction. Selfishness, malice, immorality. You need to be saved from that now. And victory can be yours in this area, church. You don't have to live in defeat. You can live in victory in this. You say, is it hard? Harder than anything you've ever done. Difficult. This Christian life is not easy. The hardest thing you will ever do, but the most rewarding when you wake up every day living in victory and looking forward to the victory ahead, not the defeats. And I don't know anybody who's perfect, but in terms of NFL, let's characterize it in terms of a season, you ought to be 11 and 5 every year. 11 and 5 every year. 11 wins, 5 losses. Okay, I don't even like this team I'm going to talk about as I close. New England Patriots. <laughs> don't even like them. But they, in the last 12 years, they won five Super Bowls. Five. Or 14 years or whatever. Five. And nobody even remembers that during that time, they've lost 60 games. 60. But they've won like 210 Amazing. But nobody even cares about the 60. And nobody describes them as losers, even though they did lost 60. They only think of them as winners. There are other teams they describe as losers. No. 2009 Detroit Lions, losers. 0 and 16. 0 and 16. 0 and 16. Y'all thought I was talking about somebody else. No, you're getting me fired is what you're trying to do. No, 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 no. You can be a winner. Will you win them all? Uh, probably not. But you ought to try. You ought to try. You shouldn't just give up saying, well, I'm, a, I'm, I'm only human. No, you are a human being made in the image of God. And God has designed you to win.